And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. This is actually the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. There's another occasion in John chapter 2 at verse 13 through 16 that I'm going to read for you. And that text says, The Jews' Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to the Jerusalem. This is early in his time that he spent on this earth. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves. Now the other text just tells us that there were those who were taking care of doves. This says sheep and doves. He made a scourge, a small cords. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now we need to kind of get the picture of what was going on here in order for us to appreciate what Jesus was saying. First of all, the place where he was standing was a large patio area or large uh, walled off area that was uh, reserved for certain people. The uh, temple itself had been built by Herod the Great, and it had taken him, according to John chapter 2, it had taken him 38 years to get it done. It sat on top of a large plateau on top of a hill, a mountain as we would, they called it, a mountain. It was the place where David had made his home at one time, David the king. It was surrounded by large walls. It was quite a, quite a large area. I'm not sure how many acres it involved, but it would be like a big fairground, except it was bordered by a huge stone wall that went up sometimes as high as 50 feet, higher than the trees you see around here. It was all walled in, cordoned off, and had some gates that opened into it. The main gate, of course, was one that people came in, in and out in order to uh, access the temple. In the middle of this large enclosure was the temple. And the temple was, of course, ordained with gold and, and uh, precious stones and so forth. It was the place where Israel was supposed to come and meet with God. And confluent to the temple was a large palace that was built for the Roman entourage. Roman rulers had their headquarters inside the temple. And it, was, it had a large raised area where the guards and the captains of the guards could look down over the group, over the people who had come, and make sure that no riot or, or a chaos occurred. And in the, in the entry of this temple, as they came in before they got to the temple itself, there's a large courtyard, and it was called the Court of the Gentiles, or Nations, which was a uh, concession that the Jews made to the Gentiles. Gentiles who wanted to come and observe what the Jews were doing 
could come into that area and they could offer sacrifices. They could not come into the temple area itself, but they could come into what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, the place we're talking about is a place that everybody believed was where God met with man. It was a special place for the Jews or the Israelites because they said it was their God, it was their place, and it was, it was what they could offer to other people only if they were willing to do what the Jews asked them to do. The Jews had control of the temple. And they had control of everything that went on there. Those who ruled and did the order of the services in the temple were called Sadducees. Those who decided what was right and what was wrong, those who interpreted the law, were called Pharisees. So they had their, they had their, their groups, their society levels, demarcated so that everyone knew what to expect. What we have to remember, if we're Bible students, we want to know what God has in store for us. What we have to remember is that this is not what it looked like in the days of Moses or in the days of David or in the days of Solomon. So let's go back just a little bit. God wanted people to meet with him. And so he initially established what was called a tabernacle or had them build a, a tabernacle in the wilderness. When they, they spent 40 years coming from Egypt, going to the promised land before they ever came into the land where this temple was built. So God had them build a tabernacle. It was a, it was a tent, not like your olive drab military tents that you see today. It was a, it was a fantastic affair. It was made out of, the interior of it was made out of fine linen. The exterior covering of it was made out of animal skins, goat skins, ram skins, badger skins, and it was colorful. Matter of fact, it was made of three different colors. A brilliant red, an azure blue, and a purple. That was the color of it. So if you were standing off at a distance and you looked, you would see this multicolored, beautiful tent that was impervious to the weather. In other words, the animal skins were, were over this tent so that it could be weatherproof. Now that tent lasted over 500 years, or 500 years later it was gone. So it was, it was not made to be permanent, basically. But that was where God met with the children of Israel, only those people, Israelites. And in order to know that he was there, a, a cloud, a bright cloud would come down into that tent and settle over it and into it. Moses, in order to talk to God, would go inside that tent and speak with God and God with him. And Moses, of course, wrote down all the law and everything that pertained to the children of Israel and what they had to do, the covenant, so to speak. When he would come out, the text says, we're told in 2 Corinthians 3, that his face was shining in another text. Anyway, this tabernacle housed the Ark of the Covenant. It housed the, uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant, it had Moses' rod, Aaron's rod, I mean, Aaron's rod that budded. It had a, ta it had a little uh, bowl of manna in it. 
and it had the two tables of covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, on two tables of stone. It had a showbread, table of showbread. It had an, it had a, uh, a ark of the covenant that was covered by cherubim. It had, uh, it had the seven golden candlesticks. Anyway, it it housed the place where God met with the children of Israel. When they came into the land of Canaan, it was situated at a place called Shiloh. That's the Ark of the Covenant and all the different implements inside that tabernacle. The, the tabernacle eventually disappeared. They still had the Ark of the Covenant and they still had the seven golden candlesticks and they had the table of showbread and so forth. These were later brought into the city of Jerusalem by David and placed there and then later Solomon built the tabernacle or built the temple like the one we're talking about now that Herod had built but Solomon built the temple and that's where everything was ensconced that God had and at that time after Solomon made a prayer to God in 1 Kings in chapter 8 after he made the prayer then that cloud of glory, it's called the Shekinah cloud, came into the temple and people knew that that's where God was and that they could talk to him. I want you to remember something, however, and that is that there was no such thing as a court of Gentiles at that time. It wasn't there. Not there. It was called a house of prayer. That's what this text says. Jesus said, you've made my father's house a house of prayer, a a den of thieves. The house of prayer has been turned into a den of thieves. We think about a den of thieves, at least I do. When I think about a den of thieves, I think about a, a, a grotto, a cave of pirates and brigands where people are brandishing knives and swords and, and drinking grog and so forth and, and making, making merry and doing all sorts of bad things. That's what he actually is talking about. He's talking about people who are doing things they shouldn't be doing in that courtyard. The point, however, is he's calling this, he says, my father's house, you turn my father's house into a den of thieves, place of brigands, place of merchandise, place of chaos. Let's see if we can get in mind what's going on out there. They had set up marketplaces out, out in this courtyard. Solomon didn't have anything like that, but, but uh, Herod built something to accommodate the Gentiles. The Gentiles were never accommodated, the nations were never accommodated in God's original structure, the, the temple. They never were. Matter of fact, they were told they could pray toward the temple, but not pray in the temple. That's what Solomon told them. Matter of fact, we can read that in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43. It says, uh, Solomon speaking, he says, Moreover, concerning a, a stranger that is not of your people of Israel, but comes from a far country for your namesake, they shall hear of your great name and of your strong hand and they shall, the, your stretched out arm when he shall come and pray toward this house. Okay. The stranger, the Gentile, could pray in the direction of the house, not in the house, but pray toward the direction of the house. So Herod had actually, uh, what would you call it? He had, he had defiled 
the temple area, basically, by making it a court of Gentiles. And in so doing, it had set it up so that people could set up their place of business. The Gentiles came, and what did they do? They made merchandise of what was going on. And that's basically what happens today when, when people decide that there's a place called a temple or a tabernacle or a place where they believe God is, especially. They take advantage of that. They market that. And they take advantage of the people's feelings of tender feelings of religiosity when they come to that area. And so they, they sell them th things. They sell them trinkets. They sell them lighted candles. They sell them all sorts of things. They sell them autographed books. They sell them uh, relics. They sell them anything they can sell because it's a marketplace. Now, God never intended that his temple be a marketplace. But that's what it had become in Jesus' day. So if you can get in mind something like this. You come inside the great walls. The doors are open. The huge doors are open. And you can come inside the court of the Gentiles. And there you see livestock. The smell of the barn and the barnyard. You see livestock in pens. People hawking these wares. Selling them. Maybe taking bids on them. To be offered at sacrifice. It kind of reminds me of a widow going to the funeral parlor and talking to the funeral director about a coffin for her husband. Of course, the guy's going to make as much money as he can in selling that coffin because he's dealing with someone who has tender emotions. Well, here are the tender emotions coming in. We have to offer something to God. And so you have someone trying to sell them a side of beef. You're trying to sell them a sheep. Trying to sell them a lamb, a goat, whatever. Trying to sell them a, a dove. There, there's chaos going on. And people are hawking their merchandise. It's like a bazaar. Now, Jesus comes into this and he says, let's get these animals out of here. So he drove them out, made a cord, he drove the animals out. And he turned over the tables of the money changers. What happened was, the money changers, the, the, uh, the people who were running the temple business would not accept a coin with the image of Rome on it, or an emperor. They would only take the coins that were, had the stamped image of their temple or whatever it may be, the coinage that they used. So they had to exchange those coins for Roman coins, and they exchanged them at a profit. Obviously, they were making money. They were there to make money. That's all they were doing. It was a merchandise. It was a, it was a bazaar. It was, a, it was chaos, it was clamor, it was noise, it was distracting. Everything that was going on was distracting from what should have been there. And Jesus said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And he said, it should be a house of prayer, where people could come and talk to God. That's what the temple was for. You came and talked to God. Okay. That's what's stated in Isaiah chapter 56 at verse 7. It says, Even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So he's saying there's time coming when everybody can come and commune with God and offer sacrifices. 
Uh, Jeremiah 7.11 says, Is this house which you call by my name become a, a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. The temple was constructed by Solomon. Yet Solomon recognized, even as he was building the temple, he wasn't building the court of the Gentiles, remember. He wasn't building a big walled compound. He built a temple on the, on the Mount of, of Zion where David resided. He built a temple. But he said in this, at verse, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, God knew that something bad was going to happen at that place. Whenever men decide that they know where God is going to be, that they can house Him, then there's some way to make some money on that. Some way to merchandise that. Some way to take advantage of that. And so Solomon, in, even in his prayer, made this statement in verse 27. He said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. He said, this isn't the house that can contain God. Isaiah 66 at verse 1 and 2 expresses the same statement. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things has my hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But this, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. So he's saying, I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to meet with you in a house. He said, heaven is, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Now, Stephen said the same thing. He quoted this same passage in Acts chapter 7, verse 49 and 50. He said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, and what house will you build me, saith the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Now, Jesus indicated, he indicated early on in his, in his work that there was not going to be a specific place where people had to go in order to worship God. He, he, he knew, he, and of course he went to the temple to meet with people to help instruct them and to teach them and to get them out of their errors. But he also told a woman that was at the well of Samaria he said, you don't, worship, you don't worship what you know. You're worshiping what you don't know. We know what we worship, salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, saith the Lord, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's a simple, that's a simple program. It's a simple process. It's something that everybody can engage in. You don't have to go. You don't have to make a journey to Mecca. You don't have to make a journey to Jerusalem. You don't have to go up to Salt Lake City. You don't have to go up to, back to Rome. As a matter of fact, he's saying, if you worship me, worship my Father, you will do it in spirit and in truth. That's the way it works. Now, Let's go beyond that. Jesus told his disciples something that, uh, that should help us realize what was going on in his day. He answered in John chapter 14, 23 to his disciples. He said unto them, 
If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him. Make our abode with him. Now, he's not saying you come to me. That's important. He's saying, I will come to you, and my Father will come to you. Now, where are you? Well, you could be any player, couldn't you? Revelation chapter 3 at verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. I will come in. If any man loves me, keeps my commandments, my Father and I will come to him. Now, it's, it's more than that, actually. The holy place, which was what Israel said was the temple, that was where God met with his people, Israel. That was the holy place. The holiest of all holies was the in, interior of that place. But the holy place was where God would come and there people could come and meet with him, commune with him by sacrifice, by prayer, by offerings, by, by hearing his word. Okay, but the holy place today, and from the time after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the holy place was Christ in you, was you. You're the holy place. Now that's, that's almost beyond our, our comprehension. But that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the holy place is in you. Now, you can be a den of thieves if you're not careful. You can be merchandising. You can be selling. You can be bartering. You can be marketing. That's what they were doing in the court of the Gentiles outside the holy place. They weren't in the holy place, but they were there close by, and they were making that whole area a den of thieves. They were merchandising. They were... They were carrying on commerce. They were making money. They were passing through. They were having a bazaar. That can happen within ourselves if we're not cautious, if we're not aware of the fact that God comes into us and that we are indeed, as he estimates us, we are his holy place. Romans 8 verse 10 says, If Christ be in you. Now that's... That's sort of a, not, not, not a conjecture. It's not an if Christ is in you necessarily. It's, he's saying if Christ is in you by way of making a declarative statement. He's saying if Christ is in you, here's how you ought to behave. You ought to understand that. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 16, it says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are the temple of God. It's easy to forgive that, to forget that. It's easy to disregard that. It's easy to think in terms of, I have to go someplace, some special place. If I want to get close to God, I have to be in some special place. Maybe a place that has candles burning, that I can buy a candle and light it for someone. Maybe I can go to a place that's a, a large cathedral so I can feel holy. Maybe I can go somewhere where God is strongly, He's strongly there, where I can feel His presence. Maybe I, I can go there. And that's really, that's, that's the inclination of humanity, isn't it? It is. When people begin to think about where God is, they want to build a big building. They want to build a cathedral. They want to build a magnificent structure. They want to build something that reaches up into the clouds. They want to build something. 
so that that building somehow speaks about the presence of God. And yet God said simply, hey, you're the temple. What do you look like? How do you look? Are you, are you, are you worthy? Are you, are you there? Are you worthy of that? Well, certainly none of us are. But when Jesus comes into our hearts and cleanses the temple, He washes us from our sins in His own blood, then we become the place where God lives. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. Okay. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. God purchased you. He purchased all the equipment necessary to build a temple. And you're the temple that He built. A temple built without hands. Galatians 2 at verse 20, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. You are a little temple. You are God's little temple. Let's see. What did I do? There we are. We have a holy temple as well. Not only, you know, the temple was, like I said before, was made out of two parts. The outer part where the most the ordinary priests could come and serve. They'd come in and, and light the candles. They'd come in and change the bread on the table of showbread. They'd make sure everything was clean and spunky. And then they would offer the sacrifices. But in, there was a, a space inside that temple that was called the holiest of all. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the law was, where the Word was, and where where they thought especially that's where God was. Now, the temple of God was designed to be built individually. Individually. And then each temple melded together with other temples, made a holy temple unto the Lord. A big one. When all come together when we all come together. And that's why the Bible says, Be you holy, for I am holy. And it's talking about the individuals in 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. that says, But as he which is called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. So he's talking to everybody. All you be holy. But there's something special when every temple, small temple, comes together and blends together and joins together and shares what they have in the strength of Jesus Christ with one another. I need to hurriedly say this. That is that the church exists as a body of people. That body of people are small temples. That when that body of people is together, it is a large temple. And what happens is each individual comes and contributes part of their strength in Jesus. What you have, you put into the common pot, let's call it. Let's say there's a collection. We say, well, it's easy to remember that 
we can toss money in there and make a collection. That's not what I'm talking about. We are making, making a contribution to each other. I'm coming if, I, if I'm able to participate and give something to you that would strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I contribute. I, I think about it in terms of a hobo stew. Have you ever heard of a hobo stew? They used to, hobos rode the rails in this country. They rode the trains. And, and sometimes they'd get together in a little camp and they'd carry a pot with them and they'd make a stew to feed everybody. And so everybody would contribute what they could to the stew. Made a good stew. But everybody contributed something to it. So when we come together, we're not a stew, but we're a temple. When we come together, we come together strengthening each other, contributing something. If you come here, come together just to get something, you're going to take something away from the strength of the temple. Now, Ephesians 2, at verse 18 through 22 says, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You are built, he's talking about everybody, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being a chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitly framed together, grows unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. You're builded together. Now there's a text in Matthew chapter 12 that talks about when two or three are come together, there am I also in the midst of them. He's talking to the apostles. He's talking about their being able to speak by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and reveal the gospel of Christ. He's not talking about individual Christians. He's talking about the apostles and what their work was. What we're talking about now is the building of the community of God, the church as it's called. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church at Corinth and all churches of Christ, that is being of Christ, all churches are likened to a human body. And in that human body, he's saying, if everybody is a is the is the ear, where was the smelling? And everybody was was the seeing, where was the hearing, and so forth. So he's saying every part of a human body contributes to the strength of that body. That's true, isn't it? That's Brother Paul. His toes hurting him. So some strength is being taken away from him. But the point is, when something is missing, then it it hurts and damages the whole body. When something is not contributing to strength and something is taking away, that is, destroying the strength of the body, then, then that's, that's, uh, that's, that's harmful. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it. Now he's talking about the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So God's small temples band together and make a large temple. And in that large temple, that's where we do things together that we can't do separately. Although we we can do a lot of the things separately that we do together, but some of the things that we do together give us strength. Now, when the church comes together, the church can offer songs 
and can sing one to another. You can sing at home, in the car, wherever you might be. But you cannot sing to me unless you're with me. Follow? So Ephesians 5.19 says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, speaking to yourselves, to each other. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We do that as a body. We do that as a group, as the large temple that's together. Everyone contributing something. Everyone giving something. Everyone making the temple prettier, larger, more glorious, more beauty, more appeal. Believers share the word together. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 says, So we being many are one body in Christ, every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, which means speaking, speaking the word of God, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. He's saying we have gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. So our different, different gifts are combined and, and pooled together and we get stronger. We're, we're more, more uh, capable of doing God's work. We come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, Paul spent eight days in a, a town one time called Troas. He was on a, on a river trip or sea, sea journey. And he was on his way back to Jerusalem to start all over again. But, but he came to Troas and it says he waited. He had to wait. He wait, waited eight, eight days almost. He said on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. The disciples came together to break bread. They came together to commemorate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's called the Lord's Supper. And we read that when Jesus left this earth, He said, I want you to remember me. Don't forget me. Don't forget. Remember me. This is the bread which is my body broken for you. This is the fruit of the vine which is my blood given for you. As often as you do this, you do show the Lord's death until He comes. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We celebrate the Lord's memorial together. We also share some of our resources. Now, we should never come together to sell things to each other. You should never be here to try to market something. That's not the purpose. If you're here to sell a book, if you're here to sell an autograph, if you're here to sell a piece of real estate, if you're here to sell... Uh, some kind of a pyramid scheme, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You're making the Lord's house, that is, His people, you're merchandising in God's temple. You're, you're becoming part of the den of thieves rather than part of the assembly of the saved. Okay. We do share our resources, however. Paul said, upon the first day of the week, let everyone of you lay by him in store that there be no gatherings when I come. So on the first day of the week, we contribute what we can to make the stew, maybe. We just contribute what we can. And that's what he tells us to do. Everyone should contribute that which they purpose in their own hearts, according to Second Corinthians 9. And in, in that text, it says, Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. So we get stronger, or should get stronger, when we come together. We should feel something. We should be able to contribute something. We should be able to recognize that God is among us. We can sing to one another. We can pray with one another. We can study God's Word together. We can contribute of our resources. We can encourage one another to do what God wants us to do and and to remain faithful, to be strong in the Lord and be a holy temple in God. We are our own little temple. We are a temple individually, but we're a stronger, bigger temple when we're together. Now, I haven't said anything about becoming a den of thieves in your own life. That, that's obvious, I think. If, if we expect Jesus to be in our hearts, we have to clear out the things that keep us from him. And he will do that. He will cleanse the temple, <laughs> just like he did then. He'll chase out the animals. He'll make sure that he turns over the table to the money changers. He'll make sure that we know in ourselves that we have to be right before him, that we have to get rid of our habits, our, our um, vices. We have to get rid of anything that would, would uh, what would you call it? Anything that would defile the temple of God. Anything that would make, would, would uh, nullify it. Anything that would darken its walls. Anything that would stain its walls. We need to get rid of that in our lives. When we come together, we come together as holy and the holy temple helping one another. We are a holy temple in the Lord. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to leave that with you and, and uh, pray that uh, we've said some things that will help you this morning understand how valuable you are to God and what a precious treasure you are to God and how important it is for you to share that treasure that you are, that you have, with someone else. And you share that when we come together in the Lord. Let's stand and sing the song of invitation.